Case number 22-3024, United States of America v. D'Angelo Evans, also known as D'Angelo Evans, appellant. Ms. Berman for the appellant, Ms. Kalu for the appellant. Good morning. Mr. Evans was convicted of being a felon in possession of a firearm that Kirk Police officers seized from his person back in September of 2009. During his encounter with police, Mr. Evans forcefully asserted his Fourth Amendment rights by declining to consent to the search. And the Kirk Police officers violated those rights when they searched him anyway without a warrant. The only basis for a warrantless pat-down trip was the officers claimed that they saw a bulge in Mr. Evans' waistband. I submit that testimony was not credible. I think an important starting point is that even though Judge Jackson ultimately denied the motion to suppress, she was taken aback by many of the testimonies. No body camera video because the Kirk Police, as late as 2018, still didn't have body cameras. The officers contradicted themselves and each other repeatedly. They testified that they were in what they described as a high-crime area and saw a bulge in Mr. Evans' pants, but for several minutes did not secure the weapon. During the suppression hearing, Judge Jackson said that she had, quote, never heard anything like it. Asked the AUSA if she had ever, quote, seen a case where an officer who believes someone is armed because they've seen the weapon would just let somebody sit there and not pat him down. What was the, I thought you just said several minutes, and I thought elsewhere I'd read it was like one minute. What is the fact-finding on the time between when the first officer saw the bulge and thought it was a gun, perhaps, and when the pat-down actually happened? Do you know exactly what that time frame was? I don't think that they established a precise time frame. There was a period between when Officer Keene first observed the bulge and then later Officer Sinecourt did, and then they waited several minutes while two other units reported. After those other units reported that Officer Sinecourt and one of the newly arrived officers, Officer Kennedy, grabbed the defendant and Officer Keene then seized the weapon. We do know, I think, that the time between the request for a backup and the backup arriving was a minute or two. Correct. One of the other things that Judge Jackson noted was that she was asking whether the government was asking her to credit the officer's testimony because it's so peculiar. When she ruled on the motion, she referred to their odd judgment and the fact that it seems like he sent the junior varsity in. But then having stepped to the brink of making a finding that their testimony was not credible, she backed away from that and ultimately denied the motion. And we submit that this was clearly erroneous. We recognize that this is a very high standard. We recognize that the court defers to factual findings and can only reject those factual findings when testimony, when the district court credited exceedingly improbable testimony. We submit that that's the case. Let me briefly set the context because I think the context is important here. I'm sorry, but I want to get to your context. I just want to make sure I'm clear on understanding one thing. You are bringing just a challenge to the district court's credibility determination as to the officers reviewing the gun and conducting the search. You are not arguing, I think you even agreed, that if in fact she finds and we uphold the finding that the officers saw a bulge and thought it was a gun, that a search, that would be sufficient by itself 
believing that he was armed alone would be sufficient to justify the search if that is credited? Yes, Your Honor. I think all, I think everyone agreed in the district court, really, that all the other... You don't argue that they had to separately find that he was dangerous? No, Your Honor. I agree that if you accept the credibility finding, that's the end of the case. I want to set the context here, which is that if you look at many of the other cases on this, Evans wasn't doing anything inherently suspicious at the outset of the encounter. He was wearing seasonally appropriate clothing, pants were buttoned, voluntarily left the vehicle. He wasn't making any furtive gestures. He didn't lie. He wasn't sweating. He didn't try to flee. There was no smell of drugs. And so, as Your Honor said, this entire case is based on the testimony about the observation of a bulge. Well, also, there's his attempts to not display that side of his waistband. Yes, Your Honor. The facts I was setting forth were kind of leading up to the officer's testimony about those observations after he got out of the vehicle. And we submit that if you look at the entirety of their testimony, there's a series of inconsistencies. There are inconsistencies about the speed of the vehicle. Officer Cain testified he was going at a high rate of speed. He started out in Superior Court. He made no mention of that. Officer Cain was inconsistent on the issue of calling for backup. He testified that before he got out of the vehicle, he merely called in the location of the stop, but he was impeached with grand jury testimony that he had called for backup. Officers were inconsistent about whether or not Officer Pinnacore asked for Mr. Evans for consent to search. Cain said he didn't, but Pinnacore said that he did. They were inconsistent about whether Mr. Cain initially, whether Mr. Evans initially did anything suspicious. Officer Cain said that he didn't detect anything about, anything suspicious about Mr. Evans' appearance. Cain testified that it was not normal for Evans to position himself as he did with respect to the vehicle, but Pinnacore said that was not unusual. Cain and Pinnacore both testified that even after they allegedly detected a bulge, they didn't perform a pat-down several minutes into the encounter. And we suggest that this is simply not plausible, that police routinely do pat-downs when they don't have overwhelming numerical evidence. He goes, two armed officers confronted a teenage girl and a skinny, shivering, anemic suspect in what they claimed was a high-crime area. Now, the district court rationalized all these oddities by saying that the fact that their testimony was not well-polished and well-rehearsed in some ways adds to their credibility. This is sort of an odd standard in which heads of the government win and tails of the defendant loses. Government agents testify clearly and consistently. The government wins if they testify in a way that's somewhat confusing and inconsistent. The defendant loses. We submit that that's not an adequate basis for credibility. Well, did the court actually say about that increasing their credibility? Pardon me? What exactly did the court say about the lack of coordination in the testimony increasing their credibility? Well, she said, to quote, she said, the fact that their, in Appendix 31, the fact that their testimony was not polished or well-rehearsed in some ways adds to their credibility. In some ways. And that's where I think we get into a heads and tails. So, well, so that's, what does that tell us? It's sort of quaint, right? Quaint, rather quaint, and maybe even charming of the officers. Not sticking to a script. Yes, I don't want to consume my rebuttal time here, but I would simply point out that we have cited the cases, the civil case in the circuit, the bishop case, the criminal case in the second and third circuit, where courts have applied the Anderson standard and reverse credibility findings in criminal cases, and we would ask that you do so. Thank you. Good 
Good morning, Your Honors. May it please the Court and Counsel, Jim Namso Kalu on behalf of the United States. Your Honors, we are asking this Court to affirm the District Court's denial of Mr. Evans' motion to suppress because the District Court, the record does not show that the District Court clearly erred in crediting the officer's testimony. Well, one of our rationales was that they were the junior varsity, but in fact, at least one of the officers had been serving for a decade and participated in, you said, 20 to 40 gun recoveries. That was part of the record, too. So how is it credible for the District Court to conclude that these were sort of inexperienced, naive officers when, in fact, at least one of them was highly experienced? Well, I think that the comment about the officers being sort of junior varsity perhaps went to a critique of their tactical judgment in this situation. I don't take that to say that she thought that they were totally inexperienced, perhaps rather that they, as she said later, let's see, 282 in the appendix, she said, she talks about the fact that they didn't use all available force. And I think perhaps they didn't. They didn't let him go sit over on the sidewalk. Which the officers explained. And the court did discuss the officer's testimony that the reason that they chose not to, for example, draw their service weapons or take Mr. Evans down was because they had gotten to where they thought the situation was safe, where the situation was calm. Well, the question is why they didn't just do a pat down, which officers routinely do in tense situations for their own safety. And both of these officers had been involved in many, 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 many gun recoveries. I mean, are you aware, USA, you've prosecuted these cases, how common is it for officers when they suspect someone has a gun to, instead of putting them down, tell them to go sit over there on the sidewalk with no officer around them and wait one to two minutes before a pat down occurs? I can't say how common it is. Have you ever seen it before? I have not personally, aside from this case. I do want to push back a little, though, Your Honor. Officer Sinecourt testified that when Mr. Evans went to go sit on the grass, you know, with his ankles crossed, his arms away from his waistband, that Officer Payne was standing two feet away from him and was facing Mr. Evans. So he was not unattended. And I also do think that, although it may be, it might seem unusual, and the district court said that this was an unusual situation, unusual does not equal not credible. She took all of these factors into consideration. She also accepted, again, the officer's testimony that they were endeavoring to maintain a calm situation, which one could argue was reasonable. There were two officers. There were two individuals that they had stopped as well. They believed one of them to be armed. That's pretty common. That's pretty common that there's, you know, there's not just one person being stopped. Really, the point is, so everything they felt, the officers felt safe enough to keep doing their business without doing a pat down as long as Mr. Evans was over on the sidewalk and I forget he had to have his hands in a certain place. So then what happened that made it, between the time that he was sitting there, just being, they kept an eye on him, 
but did not feel a pat-down necessary. And then backup shows up and a pat-down is done. Now, what happened in his behavior? What factual change occurred that suddenly made a pat-down necessary when it hadn't been necessary for the preceding two minutes? They have to show necessity at the time of the pat-down. So what made it necessary at that point? I don't think that the officers ever testified they believed pat-down was not necessary. What I took from the- They didn't testify their behavior showed. What I took from their behavior and from their testimony was that they believed that a pat-down was necessary, but that they needed to do it in a safe manner. And in their judgment, they believed that the safest way to accomplish a pat-down in this situation, where Mr. Evans was initially agitated and then responded favorably to being calmed down, I believe is the words they used by Officer Payne, they wanted to maintain that calm situation. He was calmed down before he went over to the sidewalk. He was calmed down when he was still at the side of the car. I mean, calm enough, they're like, okay, just fine, go sit over there. Keep your hands out where we can see them. So he was calm long before this. They could have patted him down once he calmed down by the car. Again, the officers, I think it might be a different situation if it were two officers and one person. But they saw what they believed was a firearm on Mr. Evans and didn't know what was going on with the driver of the car. Potentially she could be armed or get involved in the situation. Did they pat her down? They did not pat her down. At any point. But there also was no testimony that they saw anything that they believed to be a bulge. Right, so they didn't have any reason to think. There's no evidence they thought she was armed or dangerous. Aside from the fact, perhaps, that they believe Mr. Evans to be armed, and there is some case law, I believe, suggesting that where one occupant of a car is armed, that would be permissible to pat down the others. But even all of that said, again, I think that the key in this case is whether it was clear error for Judge Jackson to have credited this testimony. And for everything that we have been discussing this morning that may come across as unusual, the officers explained why they took the actions that they took. And the judge accepted their explanations. And I think that because there is support in the record for the findings of the court here, that you can't say that she clearly erred in finding that the officers were credible in testifying as to. There's testimony that for a while it was just one officer, and then when he was on the sidewalk, the second officer who was on the other side of the car saw the bulge. So they thought, at least by the time he was over on the sidewalk, they both thought he was armed. But again, and he was calm at that point, but neither of them did anything. What evidence is there in the record that they thought he was both armed and dangerous? I think that the danger would be inferred from the extended magazine. There was Officer Payne testified to seeing not only a bulge at the waistband, but also a long, hard object poking out of Mr. Evans' pants. He thought that that was a metal or hard object based on the way that it was constructed. And as Judge Jackson pointed out in her ruling, and this is at 280 in the appendix, there was no attempt to even argue that the magazine would not have created the bulge that was described by Officer Payne, and that was consistent with the way the firearm was in fact found 
in the defendant's hands. And so I think that based on those factors that, and based on- There's no factual finding by the judge. There's no testimony by either officer that they felt he was dangerous because he was armed and the behavior was inconsistent with thinking he was an immediate or imminent danger to them. And I agree, you're right to point out that there was sort of a long bulge, but there's, again, no testimony that I saw, and tell me if you're wrong, that they thought this was a particularly dangerous firearm or an illegal firearm given the size and length of the bulge. I believe Officer Payne testified to the potential that Mr. Evans might run. That initially before they were able to calm him down, they were looking side to side like he might run. That's not a reason that he wouldn't go let him sit on the sidewalk by himself, would you? Well, because by the time he went over and actually spoke to him, he was able to calm him down. But again, I think the danger is sort of, the officer's perception of danger is inherent in the way that they approached this situation, which was that they wanted backup. They did not feel safe enough to conduct the pat down at that moment by themselves. When did they call for backup? They called, so in the, there were two calls for backup, or two calls to the other unit that they were patrolling with. The first was when they initially stopped the car. Before they felt endangered or saw him, was Mr. Evans still in the car the first time they called for backup? There was a clarification that Officer Payne made in his testimony. He testified in the grand jury that that was a call for backup, that that first time when they stopped, but he clarified during his testimony that when he said backup, that he was giving his location, their location to the other officers just to let them know where they were. The actual call for backup, in other words, please come to where we are, please respond and assist us, was after they had stepped Mr. Evans out of the vehicle and they had both seen the bulge. Two different, and I see I'm over my time, and so unless there are further questions, we would just ask the court to affirm. Thank you very much. Thank you, Your Honor. Mr. Berman, how much time does Mr. Berman have? Counsel has correctly stated that there's only one call for backup. When Officer Payne initially made the stop, he said that he called in the location of his stop, that's at Appendix 73. Second point in response to what counsel said is that no one testified that they thought that what was in going down Mr. Evans' leg was an extended magazine or any other kind of weapon. They find that out after the fact, but Officer Payne's testimony was simply that he saw a large bulge going down his pant leg, that's at Appendix 49 and 50, and that he believed the lower bulge was either a metal object or a hard object, Appendix 3, but that isn't the suspicion that there was a weapon there. I think it's important to note in reviewing these credibility determinations and in reviewing the district court's candid finding that the officers made an odd judgment in your setting, is that this case didn't arise out of routine traffic enforcement. It arose out of officers looking to make a gun stop. This was not a traffic unit, it was a crime patrol unit. It was an unmarked car. They were doing a proactive patrol or an investigation, Appendix 110 and 126. They made a high number of stops that evening. 
Appendix 124. They were highly motivated to meet the case. They asked again and again and again for consent, even when Mr. Evans said no. I think that's something that the court can consider in assessing the credibility of their testimony about the bulge, and particularly considering the credibility of assessing the credibility of testimony that they saw a bulge in a firearm that everyone agrees was only three inches long and one inch wide. Anderson says that defer to the trial judge if the witnesses have told a coherent and facially plausible story that is not internally inconsistent. We submit that Haynes and Greenhorn failed that test. We would ask the court to reverse and remand with instructions to grant the petition. Thank you. Any more questions? All right. Thank you. Mr. Berman, you were appointed by the court to represent Mr. Evans in this case, and the court thanks you for your assistance. Thank you.